Well, good morning, church. I hope that you're doing well today. Um, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 12? Uh, we're going to be uh, in verses 9 through 16 today. And uh, before we get there, just wanted to make a few announcements uh, just to make you aware of, of a few things going on. Uh, the first one is we have uh, an upcoming baptism service uh, on the 31st of this month. And some of you have inquired about this or wanting to take that uh, next step as a follower of Jesus. And, uh, and so this will be at the end of this month. So you can go ahead and, um, and, and actually fill out an application on our website there. The link is up there uh, for those who are wanting to take that, uh, that next step. And then uh, secondly, uh, we have our next Discover uh, class coming up uh, on the 17th. And uh, this is for those of you who have been new, uh, been coming to our church for a little while, just wanting uh, more information about who we are. And uh, this is not uh, anything that, um, th- that, uh, that, that you're going to sign up to become a member automatically, um, but this is just to get to know us in more of a relational setting and uh, kind of what makes us tick as a church. Uh, so there's just a couple things uh, for you to be aware of this month. Um, now, before we uh, dive into the sermon just wanted to uh, share a few things um, related to uh, some of the events that happened this week uh, in D.C. Uh, I'm sure many of you have seen, you've heard uh, the, the horrifying uh, events that took place in D.C. And I, I know that for a lot of us, this has caused us to be filled with, with all kinds of, of emotions. Um, I know talking with some of you, um, this has caused maybe for you to be filled with horror. Uh, and just um, and just maybe deeply frustrated, maybe upset, um, but but one of the common emotions that I keep hearing is just confusion of like ha- how are we to process this uh, as a Christian, right? As believers in Jesus, um, whose citizenship is in heaven, I think we need to ask the question, just like we do with uh, almost every event, how are we to process what happened? through the lens of being a follower of Jesus whose citizenship is in heaven. I just want to maybe encourage us with, with just a, a few reminders today, um, and, and I hope that this, uh, this blesses you today and, and maybe even exhorts you. Um, number one, just want to encourage us to just remember our identity, that our identity is in Jesus. And, and, and while, there, while there's a difference between political activity and political idolatry. And while we cannot know the motives of every single person that was at that rally, I think we need to understand that for some, what took place there in D.C. was more than just a political rally. I think that what happened, we witnessed this, that there was the the political and the theological came together in some really confusing ways. I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but, but we witnessed uh, the, the Christian flag being waved. I mean, we, we saw signs there of Jesus 2020 and, and another really disturbing images that I know for me watching that, like as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor, I was horrified thinking that some of the things that took place, at least for some in part, was done in the name of Jesus. And I don't know if, if that's how you interpreted those things or you felt, but just, just kind of watching that, I think one of my concerns is seeing the symbols of Christianity being melded together with the symbols of a political identity because the result is Christian nationalism, which we should warn and guard ourselves against. Because that, that's, that's not who we are. 
Like for us as the church of Jesus Christ, we are a blood-bought people whose allegiance is to King Jesus, right? So the statement, Jesus is Lord, like that is a, that is a far-reaching political statement. And it was a political statement in the first century where you're saying Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. It's a political statement today. Jesus is Lord, not whoever is in the White House. And so our citizenship is in heaven and that means that we are exiles here in, uh, in, in the earth as we live our lives. And therefore, we must avoid, I think, fusing together our national or political identity with our Christian identity in such a way where our allegiance to God is put on the same level as our allegiance to our country. All right? Jesus Christ even said this in John 18, verse 36. He says, "'My kingdom is not of this world.'" If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Okay, so just a reminder, our identity is in Christ, our hope is in him. Secondly, another just encouragement for us, just to remember the object of your hope. Because our king is Jesus, not who is in the White House, our hope is not in a political party, it is in heaven. That the effectiveness of the gospel going forth is not dependent on the future of this nation. And what this country desperately needs, more than anything, for hearts to be changed are not the right policies to be in place, but for the gospel to go forth. And the, the vehicle for that is not through a political party. The vehicle for that is through the church and the saints of God declaring the gospel with boldness. And, and so I... I want to say this, and I hope it's received in the way that I'm intending this to be received, but the, the mission of the church in the first century was not to make Rome great. It was to make Christ known, right? And so our mission today as a church is not to make America great. It's to make Jesus Christ known. Our hope is in him. And then thirdly, just, just want to call us just to be reminded to pray and to be a peacemaker, all right? We're told this in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Just to encourage us, pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray for peace in our country, but also pray for our own hearts, I think Satan loves to deceive God's people, not in loud, obvious ways, but Scripture describes him as an angel of light. And so we need to pray for discernment, pray that God would search our own hearts, that we would also be a peacemaker in our words and our actions as we interact with those around us. And that's a good maybe transition to our sermon uh, this morning. So would you join me in praying just briefly? Thanks, Bill, for leading us in prayer, but just want to pray for our time in God's word. God, I pray, uh, Lord, as we turn to your word, Lord, as we look at the idea of being united in Christ, Lord, I pray that we would understand that what Jesus has created in and through the gospel is something that the world cannot generate without you. And Lord, I pray that as we think about who we are as your people, Lord, I pray that we would find our identity first and foremost in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that this time in your word, God, that you would stir in our hearts longings for you. 
Lord, that we would hear and see things in your word that would convict and would encourage us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are uh, in week two of this short sermon series called We Are. This is a a brief look in talking about who we are as a church, which uh, we have summarized using six core value statements. And we use core values as not theological statements of faith. That, that's in our, uh, another document that we have. But these are statements that describe uh, what's important to us. And I just want to say, just because we have core value statements does not mean that we're living these out perfectly. Uh, but I think that they're important because they provide a description of the flavor and the feel of our church. These core values, they undergird, they influence, and they clarify not only what we do, but how we do them. All right, and last week we looked at the first two, that we are driven by the Bible and we are shaped by the gospel. Today we're looking at these next two, that we are known and embraced and we are united in Christ and diverse. So let's look at the first one here, that we are known and embraced. I want to begin by asking you just to think about your favorite metaphor to describe the church. Okay, this could be something from uh, the New Testament. This could be another metaphor that's used today. But what is your favorite metaphor of the church and why? Uh, Ever since the New Testament was written, God's people have been using all kinds of different metaphors. Uh, You think about the Apostle Paul or Peter, they use metaphors like the church is a building or the church is a bride or the church is is a body. Uh, Other metaphors used today, the church is a, a hospital for sinners or the church is a battleship that's on mission, taking the gospel forward. Or, or the, the church is a flock, or the church is, a, is, is an organization. Or I think whatever your favorite metaphor is in describing the church, it, it's important to think about that because it not only informs how you think about the nature of the church, kind of what the church is, but it also informs your involvement in the church and your relationship with other people. For me personally, my, my favorite metaphor used of the church in the New Testament is a family, that the church is a spiritual family. I love this verse in Ephesians 2, verse 19. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This metaphor being in the household or the family of God deeply informs this core value that we are known and embraced. In fact, the description uh, for this core value says that we desire for every person to feel welcome in our church and find a place to belong and be known. God invites us to come as we are, but, we, but not to stay stagnant. We want everyone invested in relationships which encourage growth in Jesus. God wove us into a spiritual family where we can serve, love, and care for one another. Love that description. Let me maybe unpack this by giving us uh, just a few ways that this impacts uh, our church. First, I want you to know that the way that this impacts our church is that there's an expectation here of, of being known. And I know that for some of us, this is a real challenge to, to want to be known by others in the church. And maybe that's the case because you were burned by a church in the past. Uh, Maybe it's because you're you're an introvert or maybe you're more secluded relationally. But for whatever reason, uh, maybe you're here today, you're tuning online, and maybe you just don't want to be known by others in the church. 
Well, for us, that, that's not our understanding of what the New Testament says about what it means to be part of uh, the church. And I want to say this as lovingly as possible, but if you're looking for a church where you can kind of slip in, hear the message, and slip out and not be known, this church may not be the best church for you. That when we look at the New Testament, there are almost 60 different one another commands. Serve one another, love one another. And it's almost impossible to fulfill those without being known and knowing others. I've said this before, but some people want their church uh, to be kind of like the Home Depot experience where men, we especially get weird, like when we go to Lowe's, there's this, um, this unwritten rule where we go in there, we don't talk to anybody, we don't need any assistance, we're going to grab what we need, get out of there, and move on with our day, right? Some people kind of want the church experience to be like that. You come in here, don't talk to anybody, don't interact with anybody, get what you need spiritually, and then move on with your day. That's not our vision for the church. Our vision for the church is more like Taco Tuesdays at your house, where everyone's welcome, there's a seat for everybody, but not only that, but you're going to be embraced and well-fed, right? And just like a family, it may be a little bit messy, right? Every family has that crazy Uncle John, right? But because we're a family, we are committed to one another, now, for this to take place, this requires a posture of wanting to be known. Now, I'm, I'm not saying your deepest, darkest secrets from, you know, on day one, but there's a willingness to develop relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ because we are part of the same spiritual family. This is done, I think, primarily through our small group ministries and uh, our Bible studies. Even our, our shepherding model that the elders have in place is, is informed by this desire to know you so that we can better shepherd you and come around you. Well, another aspect of living out this core value is we want you to come as you are, but leave transformed, okay? There is really no room here to uh, pretend to be someone that you're not, right? There is no expectation for you to put on a facade and pretend like you have it all together, right? If you're a Christian, uh, we have this understanding that we are all sinners saved by grace, right? There is no such thing as a perfect Christian, so from the leadership standpoint, as we're interacting with you, as we're caring for you, we have the basic assumption that almost everyone is in a battle with something. Almost everyone is wrestling with something. We may not be able to see it on the surface of your life on Sundays, but our expectation is not that you leave whatever you're wrestling with at the door in order for you to worship here, but that you bring that in here and you come as you are that we want you to be as comfortable as possible, welcomed as possible until we open up the word of God, then you might feel uncomfortable as the word of God convicts and stirs and encourages and transforms you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want you to come as you are, but leave transformed. And then thirdly, uh, we want you to embrace being loved, right? Sometimes it's hard to be loved on, right? Sometimes we kind of have, um, we kind of keep people at arm's length. And we chose this word embrace very intentionally. We almost settled for we are known and welcomed, 
but we felt like that was too light. It was too soft. We don't just want to know and welcome you. We want to know you and embrace you. We want to know you and, and love you. We, we believe that this fulfills a desire that we all have, and that is to belong somewhere, to have a group of people where, where you feel like you're being embraced and loved. So we want to love you so much that you come in here just as you are, but we want to love you so well that you don't stay as you are, but you grow in Christ and that you are transformed. I think both aspects of being known and embraced, known and loved are, are really important that are represented in that title. And Tim Keller says this better than I can, but he says that to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. That, that's the vision for this core value. That's what we want. Now, let me also just say that living out this core value will at times lead to relational messiness and conflict. And that's not automatically a bad thing or a sinful thing. Like sometimes I think we, uh, we think that a healthy church or a healthy relationship means that there are no issues and there are, there's no conflict, right? And yet I would say that there's unhealth in a church or relationship when there is no conflict or no messiness. Because you can get that by just avoiding things that matter, right? We call that a superficial unity or yeah, superficial unity. But the deeper that you go in a relationship, the deeper that you go in a church, the more that your, your stuff is revealed, the, the more of your issues come out. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that creates an opportunity for growth, opportunity for, for, for resolution to take place, and an opportunity for, for grace to be given and for intimacy to be experienced. And that's, that's family. Like if you're part of a family, you'd say, yeah, that, that sounds familiar. Uh, healthy families, they don't avoid conflict. They address conflict in love that results in intimacy. And so the, the closer that we get as a church, the, the more that you are knowing and embracing one another, the more that you're getting to know the issues underneath the surface. And I think that creates an opportunity for deeper intimacy to be experienced. Now, I think the question that I want to maybe address here is how do we become that kind of place, right? How do we become that kind of place where, where we are knowing and embracing one another, right? Like it sounds great on paper, but how do we get there? And that, that's where I think Romans chapter 12, I think really helps us get there. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, it says this. It says, let love be genuine, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Look, you hear that, you read that, and, and there's something within us that says, man, I want that. Like, I want to be part of a church that's living that out. Well, how do we get there? Well, eight things briefly, uh, just to point out, in creating this culture of being known and embraced, number one, we need genuine love. Verses nine and 10, this is absolutely essential in knowing and embracing each other, not just tolerating one another, but having a heartfelt, intentional care and love for others. You know, true biblical love is, is not something where we say, I'm going to love someone when I feel like it, or I'm gonna love somebody when they deserve it, or I'm gonna love someone if I get something in return. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is saying, I'm going to love that person even if it costs me something, even if it's sacrificial. I'm gonna love them genuinely. And I love what Paul says here, to, to love with this brotherly affection. I think he, he uses that to reflect the reality that we're part of this spiritual family of God, and we are to exhibit that kind of care with each other. So we need genuine love. Secondly, in verse 9b here, we need to collectively cling to what is good. There's this commitment to hold fast to what is good and to abhor evil. And that word abhor means to hate or to despise, right? And we are to do that towards things that are evil, and this phrase here, to hold fast or to cling, this is the phrase that's used often uh, towards uh, uh, husbands and wives, that when they leave and they cleave together, right? That type of image, imagery is what we are to do as the church as far as holding fast to what is good. And that's something that we need to do together as followers of Jesus because it's really hard to hold fast to what is good, especially in our culture, that for us as the people of God, we hold fast to what is good and we do so together. We stand up together as the church and we say, look, we want to hold fast to what is good as it relates to sexual purity because that's not popular right now. But we look at the scriptures and we say, no, no, that is good. Let's hold fast to that. Or as the church, we hold fast to biblical fidelity, the authority of the word. That's unpopular right now but we want to hold fast to what is good. We want to hold fast to what is good by, by honoring and believing in life in the womb, that that is something that is good, that we say yes. As the people of God, we hold fast to that, that we look at biblical justice and equality, and we say that is something that is good that we want to hold fast to. As the people of God, we want to link arms together to looking at the scriptures, looking at what is good, and holding fast to that. Third, another, I think, ingredient for this type of community is prioritizing, showing honor to others. I love verse 10b. It's so interesting. It almost uh, alludes to having a, a healthy competition in outdoing one another by showing honor, right? Like we're not competing in, in who can look more spiritual we're not competing in who has you know, the most beautiful family or who has the most money, but we're competing in trying to, to show honor towards others by, by uplifting others, by commending others, by encouraging others. That creates this environment of knowing and embracing one another. And then in verse 11, there's a contagious zeal of service. 
right? This word zeal means to be set on fire, that we are to be set ablaze, to be sacrificial for the kingdom of God in a way that impacts those around us. We come to the church and we not only have this posture of what can I receive, but what can I give to others? Another key ingredient um, in this community is pressing into the Lord together in the midst of hardship. See, when, and not if, but when you go through hardship, trials, and suffering, we do it together as the people of God. Love, love this verse in verse 12, that we cling to hope together, we patiently wait upon the Lord together, and we press towards the Lord in prayer together. It's so difficult to go through trials alone, but when we are knowing and embracing one another, we are going through the hard things of life together as the people of God. Then verse 13 here is that we are meeting the tangible needs around us, right? And, And in order to meet those needs, you have to know those needs, which speaks into this type of environment of knowing and embracing each other. I think that's why hospitality is brought up in verse 13, this idea of knowing one another by spending time together and serving each other. Paul even uses this word to seek to show hospitality. In other words, there should be this this pursuit of, of wanting to be in relationship with those around us. Verse 15, another key ingredient is this mutual understanding and compassion to the joys and sorrows of others. I think verse 15 is a great summary of one of the clearest evidences of living out this core value. Because when we truly know and embrace each other, we will rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we will weep with those who are weeping. That when, when someone is rejoicing, we don't become jealous or envious of them. When someone is in pain, we don't become suspicious of that pain or question that pain, but we take on the joy of others. We take on the sorrows of others. And then the last ingredient, just to point out here, verse 16, is this idea of a peaceful, humble harmony, that knowing and embracing each other as part of the spiritual family will lead to harmony. It will lead to this idea of biblical unity. Now, like I said before, I think the more that we know each other, the more that we know our issues with one another, the more that we're embracing each other, I think we have this need to be reminded of this next core value, is that we are united in Christ and diverse, okay? So it's not just that we know and embrace each other, but in order to do that well, we have to understand the fact that we are actually unified in Christ Jesus, In fact, we describe it this way. This is the description towards this core value that we seek to walk together in the biblical unity and oneness Jesus purchased for his church. As we continually strive toward oneness, we rejoice in our unity through Christ and celebrate God's diversity in our church in different ethnicities and skin colors, ages and life stages, levels of spiritual maturity, cultures, and complementary genders. Within the framework of sound doctrine and holy living, we display humility and guard against division in our relationships, ministry practices, and non-essential doctrines. I think in talking about this core value, there are two realities that are both reflected in that title that we must hold together in balance 
or we're gonna miss the power of this core value. The first reality I want us to understand is that we are unified in and through Jesus Christ, that it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that has created and established the unity that God's people experience together. I love Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. This is a, a powerful passage about how the gospel impacts division. It says in verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not only that, but verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Let me point out a few things about this passage. Notice in verse 11, Paul is talking about the Gentiles who were far from God and who were enemies of the Jews. Paul says in verses 13 and 14 that those Gentiles have now been brought near to God through the blood of Christ and are now one with the Jews. He even says that the, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, but both vertically and horizontally. Why? It's because the Jews and the Gentiles now, for the very first time, are bending their knee to the same king, King Jesus. That it's in Christ, it's through his blood that has created this unity among the people of God. There's one new man. This is what theologians call an objective unity that Christ has created. This is not something that you and I create, but something that Jesus has created for his people. This is why in Ephesians 4, verse 3, we are called to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To maintain it, not to create it. Jesus has already created it. He has already established it. You and I are called to live from it and to live out of it. All right, so in this unity of Christ, there is one people, that no one is more significant than the other, that we are all equal. And so our deepest and most important identity now is being in Christ. I think that's the thrust behind Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul says, here, referring to being in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We looked at this several uh, weeks ago, but Paul wanted the Colossians to view themselves and to view others through the lens, not of their ethnicity, not of their socioeconomic status, not of their social standing, 
but to view themselves and to view others first and foremost through being in Christ and their identity in him. That we are unified, not because we all look the same, not because we're in the same life stage, not because we all root for the Colts, which was a tough loss yesterday, but we are unified because we are in Christ. And creating unity in anything besides Jesus will result in a type of unity that only the world has to offer. And we saw what, what that tends to lead to even in events this week. But we are called to building unity in and around Jesus. So that's the first reality of this core value that I think we need to, we need to hold up. But there's a second reality that I think we need to hold in balance, and that is that biblical diversity makes the unity in Christ that we have beautiful and powerful. That God does not call his people to uniformity where we all look and act exactly the same way. God calls us to unity whereby we live out our oneness in Jesus through our God-given differences. Okay, you can even look around in this room right now and you can see some of those differences. <laughs> you can even look in the parking lot at the, the different cars that we drive and there are differences, if you know what I mean. That our differences in this church is, is lived out in our ages in our life stage. We have older empty nesters in our church. We have middle age with teenagers in our church. We have young families. We have singles. We have widows. We have divorcees. We have different ethnicities represented in our church, and we praise God for that. We have different spiritual maturity levels, different spiritual gifts, and, and the beauty of our diversity makes the unity that we have in Christ more powerful and deeper. Because if we all looked the same way and acted exactly the same way, the watching world would look at that and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. I know how you guys are unified. Y'all look the same way. You act the same way. But when you have a diverse group of people called the church, where they are unified under the same banner, Jesus Christ, that's when the world looks at that and says, how in the world is that possible? How are you guys unified? And yet you have so many differences. And it holds up the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when the people of God say to one another, look, we may not look the same way. We may not act the same way. But if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, then we have a blood-bought unity in Jesus that is unbreakable and it is otherworldly. And I'm going to relate to you and I'm going to handle our differences in light of our unity in Jesus. And that is a palpable witness to a watching world about the power of the gospel of Jesus that I think Ephesians 2 is all about. And John Piper uses uh, this analogy of a choir to, to get at this point. He says that more depth of beauty is felt from a choir that sings in parts than from a choir that only sings in unison. Unity and diversity is more beautiful and more powerful than the unity of uniformity. 
This carries over to the untold differences that exist between the people of the world. When their diversity unites in worship to God, the beauty of their praise will echo the depth and greatness of God's beauty far more than if the redeemed were from only a few different people groups. Look, this is why this core value, the title here, emphasizes both realities. Because I think emphasizing one and ignoring the other fails to live out what the New Testament picture of the people of God is all about. For example, only emphasizing being united in Christ and ignoring our differences is not only impractical, but I think it's, it's, it's unbiblical. When you think about the New Testament, we are not called to being gender blind, right? We have, we have different gender roles throughout the New Testament between men and women, that we're not called to being age blind, right? Titus 2 informs a ministry philosophy where you have younger and older. We're not called to being colorblind, You read Revelation 7, and there is a picture of different ethnicities, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who are gathering around the throne of God, giving him endless praise. So when you become a Christian, you don't cease to living out that particular age or gender or skin color, but when you become a Christian, it's understanding those differences through the lens of the gospel. Right? And this is where the balance comes in because you don't want to go to the other extreme where we're only viewing each other through our differences and through our diversity. But we want to view those things through the gospel of Christ because the differences are not what defines us. So the balance, I think, comes together and how we, we live this core value out is through appreciating those differences in one another by not ignoring them but learning how to best love each other in light of them while building unity in and around Jesus. That's how we live that out. And so this core value in our church means, just on a practical level, even thinking about this year, it's when those who are younger are reaching out to the older, especially during the global pandemic, where isolation and and loneliness was really high for those who were older, reaching out to them and and writing notes to them, doing grocery runs for them because we're unified in Christ even in the midst of our diversity. Living out this core value means a, a family inviting a single into their lives and doing life together. Right? This core value means those who are, who are white reaching out to those who are black in the midst of, of all kinds of racial unrest in our country and just asking them, how are you doing with this? How, how's your heart? And just reaching out to them. Right? This core value means that those who are spiritually mature are investing in those who are spiritually immature because we're unified in Christ even in the midst of our diversity. This core value is about building that deep connection in the gospel of Christ. It's about unity. It's not about uniformity. It's about we before me. Right? Even look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we have this unbelievable picture of Paul using this metaphor of the church being a body. And listen to the language that Paul uses here. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all who were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Or as we put it, we are united in Christ and diverse. Well, as we close this morning, one of the richest experiences that we get to have together as the family of God is to take communion. I think coming together as different brothers and sisters in Christ and yet part of the same family coming to the same table and taking communion is a beautiful reminder of our unity in Jesus. And I love this metaphor because it's so accurate. Just like in your own family dinner table, you've got different ages, different maturity levels, different taste buds. So too, as the people of God come together, there are differences, there is diversity, and yet we have the same family name who is Jesus Christ. God, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. We thank you that we who were once far from you, we have been brought near because of the blood that Jesus shed. God, we thank you that Jesus did something that none of us could do, that he made a way for us to be adopted into your family. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in this family together. Lord, as we journey throughout this world and this life, we are not alone, that we do this together. Lord, I pray for our church that you would continue to create a deeper sense of unity in and around Jesus. I pray for a genuine love to continue to grow as we think about what it means to live out who we are in Christ. So God, we praise you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.